The DIA is the only national professional body that champions the value of all design and the impact of our designers. Its purpose is to help designers prosper by providing knowledge, thought leadership, access and inclusivity. Head to design.org.au for more information about becoming a member of the DIA. The DIA acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, giving respect to Elders past, present and future as the continuous custodians of the land upon which the DIA National Office is located. We thank all continuing custodians of this land who share their wisdom and knowledge so that we may all have a better understanding of this place, now known as Australia. Searle & Waldron is a practice based in St Kilda in Melbourne. The firm was co-founded by Nick Searle and Susanna Waldron in 2007 with a focus on projects ranging from small-scale residential to larger-scale urban master planning. Some of their notable projects and design competitions include the MOCAPE, Museum of Contemporary Art and Planning Exhibition, and the Art Gallery of Ballarat Annex. They've been recognised with various awards from the Australian Institute of Architects, including the 2012 Colourbond Award for Steel Architecture and the 2012 Architecture Award for Public Architecture Alteration and Additions. Their designs have been exhibited across Australia and throughout Asia and Europe. Welcome, Susanna Waldron. Thanks, Catherine and Renee. Lovely to be here. So, Susanna, tell us, where are you um, joining us from today? I'm still in St Kilda, but in my home, which I've been working out of for most, it feels, of the last two years. But no, it's lovely to be here. I live quite close by to where my studio is, so we're looking forward to being back there in the next few weeks, hopefully. That'll be good. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time to turn the ship around, doesn't it? It's hard to just flick a switch and go, because our home office is now, like I set up so well, it takes a bit of logistics. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, too? And everyone's expectations of work have changed a little bit. So probably a bit of readjustment. But I think as a team, we're really excited to get back together. It's been a long couple of years. And although we were back in the office earlier in the year, it's just been very stop-start. So it'll be nice to just collaborate in person, I think, and, and pick up pens and not do so many Zoom calls. And how big's your team at the moment when you're bringing them together in the studio? How many people are you working with? Yeah, we've got six people in our team at the moment. So it's a really nice mix of sort of myself and project architect and a couple of more recent graduates and people who've been with me for, I think, someone who's been with me for sort of five or six years. So, yeah, I think we're quite a close team and we like kind of working together. It's been interesting during the pandemic too because we've had, you know, a couple of new people join us and so... You know, that, that's been quite interesting because they probably haven't spent as much time with us in, in person as they have online. And it's so much easier when you're a bonded team and you can work as a, a cohort across Zoom and you can have those very comfortable conversations online and almost just continue that working relationship. But someone coming in new is perhaps a little bit different. Yeah, well, they have to get used to all of the strange quirks that we have. So we drink a lot of tea in the office and we're always having tea breaks. And it was one of those things that works really well in real life. But like on Zoom, I think people just start having different drinks preferences or like not quite on top of getting the kettle on on time. So, yeah, we've had to find new ways to bond. It's been it's been quite good. But I think nothing kind of, yeah, I mean, nothing's as good as kind of doing things in person. It's quite a nice way to design as well. I think there's a lot of beautiful things that come out of just overhearing conversations and being able to have input in a more kind of informal way. And I think that, Although there's sort of great flexibility to working at home for some people, it's also not that great for people who are like living in share houses and are younger team members. 
I think one of our staff recently confessed that his housemates are pretty keen for him to go back to the office so they can have the dining room table back and stop eating bowl food all the time. I love it. And it, there's so many people I've worked with who have had their children working next to them as well, managing the schoolwork and, and doing that juggle. Definitely glad that school's back. Yes, I'm one of those people. So that is also a bonus. And what's your team working on at the moment? What's on the drawing board or computer screen? Today, we're having a slight rest day. We just wrapped up a really exciting competition that we were shortlisted on, actually, which I can't talk about too much, but we one of the final four in the new National Gallery of Victoria's Contemporary on John Wardle's design collective team. So that's been a really fun thing to focus on over the last few months. That's been very exciting, so we'll see what happens. But we've got actually so many fantastic projects on at the moment, um, all at different stages. It's sort of a really different range of scales and types as well. So I think this is something that as the practice has sort of grown over the last, you know, few years, I've really enjoyed the diversity. So I think our largest project sort of might be, um, oh, you were sort of doing a $15 million staff headquarters and a depot, which is a beautiful, big, quite industrial type building, down to um, a sort of a school wellness centre that's like $70,000. So we do quite a diverse range of things. But yeah, we're, I'm quite excited about it. We've got a gatehouse for a cemetery that we're working on at the moment and a little outdoor performance pavilion, which is also a really beautiful and fun little project. And quite large and long arcing building that we've been designing for a new landscape park that McGregor Copsel are doing. So that's the sports pavilion, which is also, I think, going to be a really exciting one to start to develop and document next year. You sound very busy. Yeah, a little bit busy. So we've been lucky in that way, I think, that, you know, recently work has been leading in different directions. I think I'm always open to, like, different opportunities as well. And I think we tend to focus mostly on sort of public work and that sort of has come out of some of the early projects that we won. And I guess my experience before I started an office was largely um, working in sort of community and public scale projects and education projects and things like that. But at the same time, we've actually, you know, starting to um, maybe have some residential projects too. We've got a really beautiful coastal site that um, we've got a new house that we're going to design for. So that's something really different for us, but something we are pretty enthusiastic about. So that'll be, it'd be interesting to see. I'm interested to see how that project can engage with the public kind of in a different way. It's sort of, we'll have a lot of people walking past it because it's, it's sort of got a foreshore walk adjacent to it in a park and sort of how do you, I don't know, how do you design things that are private but also sort of engage with the public realm? And that's it's just an interest I have is sort of thinking always about how projects can kind of contribute to their context and respond to their context in some way. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, you'd be considered a small practice, but the overriding focus of your projects is in public architecture. So it's so unusual to have a small practice that doesn't have that residential backbone running through it from the outset. Why do you think that is? What is that difference there? I think opportunity. I often say to people that we don't have as much choice as we think as architects. And so I think when we were starting out, Nick and I decided that we would do competitions, really. 
we didn't have any friends and family who seemed to need any residential design work from us. So rather than waiting for those opportunities to come along, which we would have grabbed if they were there, but we felt that we had to approach it in a different way. And we we used to scour, there was, I don't know if it still exists, there was this website which had a terrible name really, Death by Architecture, and would list all of the competitions that were going on. And we would sort of scout this weekly and we had like pretty strong criteria. Like generally we would look for projects that, you know, had some sort of reward component to the competition. So not necessarily um, either something that was interesting to do because we felt like it had some sort of larger kind of community benefit. So an early competition we did was for UN Habitat where we won a sort of a master plan that was based in Kosovo, which at the time had just recently become, uh, uh, you know, independent and and that was kind of, you know, a really interesting thing to think about how you could design the centre of the city to link to areas that were quite divided by a railway line and how that, in effect, might actually be an active kind of some sort of unification for the people and, and who live there and, and provide sort of really great civic spaces for them. And then other projects, we would look at things that, like, seemed exciting because they were going to be real, like they had the potential to be realised. So... Another competition that sort of both of these were in the first year or two of us starting up that we got to the final four on was a large museum in China, so sort of $100 million museum based in Shenzhen, and it was a really exciting thing for us. And I think we took ideas we'd had, you know, been thinking about previously and sort of scaled them up, and they, the site itself was almost this, you know, tabula rasa, this very kind of you know, contextless place that was a very much sort of, you know, part of the large-scale urban development that was happening in Shenzhen, like these cities growing at a scale that you can't even comprehend from, I think it's a city that's grown, you know, 100-fold from sort of, you know, 500,000 to 20 million people over, you know, a decade or two. And so it was interesting to think about, you know, a project at that scale as well. And we did that competition when we... We're both living in London. We, we worked overseas for a number of years and when we got shortlisted, we had some really great contacts who set us up and, you know, we had Arabs work with us and donate their time really to our competition. And so that was a, quite an insight into a really different scale of work and I think motivated us to think, let's give it a go and probably gave us a little bit of cash to yeah. eat out a living for a year or so while we had no work. And I think it's so interesting that because you worked on competitions and you almost formed a language, you have quite a signature architectural language, that as you went through those competitions, you could work through the ideas, develop the language. And by the time you, um, I remember the Art Gallery in Ballarat, the, the work there, and it's such a signature and it feels like that just hit the ground running in a way. You, you'd almost formalised your approach through com working in competitions. How do you think that process worked for you as a practice? Yeah, I, competitions are quite interesting and I have a sort of a complex relationship with them in some ways because I think they're amazing in terms of opportunities and they're fantastic for testing ideas, but it's also fantastic to test ideas through real projects as well. And it's also really critical for young practices, particularly doing public work, that there's opportunities for young practices to realise things in public and community scale projects as well. And I think sometimes those opportunities aren't 
as forthcoming as they should be. Like a lot of a lot of competitions are ideas competitions only. They don't translate into a real project. So we tried to leverage the competitions, even though they hadn't gone anywhere. Like you know, the the neither of those competitions we didn't we didn't you know win the Chinese one and the one with you and Habitat didn't you know go anywhere. It was it sort of gave them some ideas, but we tried to leverage them really through starting to do some EOIs and through open procurement. We just lucked in, I would say, with picking up a really small but really significant um, extension at the Art Gallery of Ballarat. It was a sort of a two-stage process and we ended up having an interview with the director of the Art Gallery and pitching some ideas for what we thought this very small extension could do. And it was trying to respond to the kind of very strong heritage context of Ballarat but in a very contemporary way and trans re reinterpreting some of the things about that place. But it's interesting because I think somebody who reviewed the project for a magazine made the comment to me she knew about the um, competition we'd done in China for the museum there and she made the comment that actually there were all these similarities. And so sometimes I think it's not even conscious. And when I really look at it, I could see that, you know, the ground plane of, of that museum in China had sort of, you know, translated itself, if you like, into the roofscape of this project. And I, I sort of looked at these two things and I think one of them was, you know, one fiftieth the scale of the other. But it's quite beautiful, I think, to be able to test ideas across different scales. And then over the last sort of period of time, I guess most of our testing has been, yeah, in the last sort of, you know, five to eight years, most of our testing has been across small projects. So be they kind of council projects or kind of community scale things, they might be alterations and additions or really small scale things. And now as we're starting to get some projects that are a bit bigger, it's also like an interesting thing where the sort of larger ideas of competitions translated into a body of, of small scale work. And now we're sort of seeing how we build those ideas back up into maybe a different scale again. When you're talking about um, competitions and because they have less boundaries, I mean, they have boundaries, there's still a brief, but it's different than working directly with the client. It sounds to me like it helped your creativity and helps you come, you know, tabula rasa, come at it with a clean slate. Can you tell us like during lockdown and at the GIA, we talk about this a lot is how did you stay creatively fit in the past few years without, you know, the spirit of in real life and collaboration? I would say we still collaborated a lot in lockdown. We, you know, we just to just to produce a piece of architecture takes so many people, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. It's right. There's engineers and landscape architects and signage consultants, and we, you know, artists maybe who are doing a mural for you, whatever it might be. Um, so those collaborations have stayed there for us. I think the challenge is. Like you say, like you can't get real life inspiration. And I think I used to talk to some of my students about this too when I when I taught numerous years ago. Like how do you approach a project where you can't visit the site? And I guess that's definitely issues with that. Yeah, I don't know if I'm answering this one very well. It's tricky. I might try can I take a different tact on this? Yeah, of course. No. I mean, do you want to ask me the question again? Because sure. I think we're trying to get to how yeah, I don't know how I'm how I'm creative in lockdown. Honestly, it's been a struggle. Yeah, well, that's a big small tool. <laughs> but I, I think, my God, I don't know. Not yeah, sure. I, 
And maybe I haven't been, Renee. I might have just liked being in survival mode. <laughs> But that's that's the rub. That's what we talk about. The DIA is we have all been in survival mode. Yeah, yeah. Like I stayed creatively fit by drinking a lot of champagne. It turned out like oh yeah, me too. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> I like for me. Yeah, like so it could be you know like uh, taking it. Yeah, so I mean, feel free. You can also tell me to stick the question. But I was just curious because you know the creativity, being creative to me is a lot of inhaling the outside world. And when everything locked down, I couldn't inhale the outside world anymore. You know, I was a bit starved and then I couldn't be in real life and feel the energy of people. And so I was just curious, like how that worked for you in lockdown and trying to stay creatively fit or letting it all hang out, like putting on metaphorical tracksuit pants of the brain and just being like, I'll check back in when the borders open. Yeah, we've had a busy couple of years, particularly um, this year, actually. And so we have needed to keep designing and keep doing things and at a reasonably rapid pace, I guess. It's definitely been a challenge. I mean, particularly for me, I've had some sort of homeschooling mixed in with it. I've developed a, a love of drinking gin and tonics, so that's possibly helped. But not being able to sort of meet up with people and some of those things in terms of collaboration you can still maintain like we're still obviously meeting with our consultants all the time and talking about projects all the time and we've been able to visit site in at, not as regularly but throughout but yeah that sort of just starting a design the sort of initial design process i think is quite challenging and has been quite challenging we set up a few things in our office just like different group chats on whatsapp for different like one for the team just to talk about anything that's happening or just to share memes and lighten our days with jokes sometimes. And then other ones just for each project so that we can sort of share, I guess, things that we've seen that we might think are relevant and it might be, you know, just a colour or it could just be an image or it might just be something someone's thought about as they've gone for their walk around the block. So I think that's helped a little bit because it's been a way of emulating the conversations we might have in the office in real life, but probably a bit of a poor substitute, if I'm honest. Like, it's not the same. Yeah, totally. I Yeah, I was shocked, like, from lockdown at how much more effort I had to put in to maintain relationships. Like, it was very, you know, when you're in work mode and so you're in cave mode at your desk, but you're still in the office, so it's okay. People can interrupt you, but then when you're at home, the cave was a lot deeper and darker you kind of surface and be like i need to touch base with these people because i've got these rogue consultants or contractors whoever yeah it's a long way of saying i totally agree it was uh, tricky yeah and i think like we're so like the collaboration part of what you do as a designer is so important and you're right it's more than just logging onto a meeting the formality of zoom meetings i think sometimes takes away from the things that might be serendipitous where you just sort of mention another project you've got going on to somebody on the side of a meeting or and they say oh yeah I know somebody who could help you out with that or you know so those things I think have really been missing and we haven't probably come up with tools that have really filled in for that I think it's just missing yeah same because it's when you crack that nut like you know designs a lot about problem solving and when you share 
that curly problem and you can do it on the fly really quickly or you can share like someone's having a you know they're going to write an email to someone and you can spontaneously just be like oh my god you know i don't know they hate the color purple so don't even mention it like you know and you can't do that you can't schedule in a zoom call to pre-warn and give them the backstory of this dog that had a blue collar or whatever and bit them and you know like that yeah i just felt starved of those tidbits yeah so the WhatsApp groups sound good. Like I get that we're just sharing a colour, like anything to keep it moving. Exactly. So it'll be nice to be back in the office though and re- sort of, you know, do this a bit more in real life, have a real version. Yeah, it's challenging. I think that, you know, I also think that for me as a person, I'm very much go to work, do work, come home, be a mum, and I'm not fantastic at merging those two things. I don't find that to be... Um, a creatively flourishing zone. <laughs> so <laughs> the division, I think, over the last two years has blurred significantly. And it's interesting because I know people who really like that and they really like that their work and, and family lives don't have such a clear division. And I don't have a big commute, so there's, you know, a lot of the negatives don't apply to me. But, um, yeah, I've not enjoyed that at all. So I've really craved... In some ways, it craves more time for myself because there's a lot of Zoom meetings and a lot of, you know, kid interruptions. And I think sometimes, even though we haven't all been um, as connected to people as we want, I've almost been like, I need more time for myself so I can think. Yeah, that's weird. My seven-year-old said to me, Mummy, why do you spend so much time in the bathroom? And I didn't say it, but I'm like, because the door shuts, like... (laughs) It's, it's my time. It's my. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really the best place to take a sketchbook, right? Like, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, though. Yeah, you like because you got to stare at the wall. You need some cup of tea wall staring every day. I have to just be like, yeah. And we don't. We didn't get that shut down. And I think that drained certainly on my creativity. That really drained. Yeah, I mean, I had a moment a few weeks ago where we just had some really beautiful and exciting things that we've been able to work on during this period, and I just was reflecting really that we've been lucky, and I'm lucky that I have got such a great team around me who have really sort of understood, actually, that I've just had moments where I'm fraying, and they've just stepped up. So, you know, probably big thanks to them, really. This podcast was made with the support of Dulux. Head to dulux.com.au forward slash colours for your insider scoop on what's new, emerging and upcoming in the wild world of colour. Explore the 2022 Dulux colour forecast colour palettes to discover the trends set to influence colour and design for the coming year. We heard you guys were travelling buddies. Yeah, we. that's where we first met. So I think in 2000... And 14, maybe? Yeah, we went on the July study tour, which was really exciting. And there was a bunch of great people who went on that trip. Bernie was there with the Institute of Architects. Mm-hmm. And then I was one of the, the winners. So, yeah, we went to the US, Chicago, New York. We stopped by Falling Water. It was really fun. How was Falling Water? Was it as good as it looks in the books? Actually, I was really surprised when I was there that there were moments that I didn't know through the pictures. Mm-hmm. So there's a really beautiful sort of awning at the back of the project that is this arc and it kind of like arcs around and steps up at the same time. We were there when it was raining, so it's kind of like this 
quite misty rain that was coming down on this awning. And I just thought, I've never actually seen a picture of this part of the project. So it's quite interesting, right, that something so iconic, Mm -hmm. which obviously there's this one spot that's the iconic photo where people are just standing there selfieing themselves making sure they don't fall in a river, um, was that. But I sort of enjoyed all the other bits of it as well. That was good. And we did a great road trip from, so we, I'm trying to think, so we flew into Pennsylvania and we basically did a road trip from there to New York. And so, you know, during that road trip, we, yeah, we stopped and bought, you know, Budweiser beers and did yeah. karaoke in the van and yeah. think Phil, fault and, yeah. yeah, and Phil, who was the lead from Dulux at the time, showed us his karaoke skills. So it was a very memorable trip. It always feels like those tours are so bonding. You can see everyone come back together as a single sort of cohort and they've lived the experience together. Yeah, no, it was good. I mean, I sort of, in a way, I already knew two of the other winners. Mm. So uh, Michael Zanardo, who's an architect in Sydney, I knew him that we we both studied architecture together for our first two years in Sydney in the sort of late 90s. And then I knew one of the other competitors, other winners, Ben Milburn, because we both worked together at OMA really briefly on a competition for some massive tower in Dubai. So it was a nice kind of to sort of meet up with them and then also meet a couple of new people as well. Yeah. That's great. Bernadette said uh, there was an incident at the glass house, Philip Johnson's glass house. Is this thing recorded? It is, but we can edit this out. So you, <laughs> we, we don't have to have this bit. We haven't even done the intro yet. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell the story. We'll decide whether this stays in or not. Yeah, so Glass House is obviously you know, very transparent, beautiful, iconic building. You're getting a special tour. I think it was a lot of effort for them to organise for us to get access. And we were, yeah, there was quite a bunch of us in the building. And so all I can say is it felt, it isn't that big a project. So, you know, it was squishy. Anyway, I was just trying to set up my photo, get a nice shot. And I took a few steps backwards into a sculpture that was in the middle of the space, which looks like a really solid thing. I mean, not that I meant to bump into it. And then it wobbled because it's actually paper mache. And, yeah, I almost had a heart attack and thankfully it just wobbled back into place. But apparently they have insurance and they didn't need to use it, so always good. And everyone saw saw this happen, saw the moment, or was it (laughs) something you could hide? It was, um, was, yeah, it was a little bit of a terrifying moment. And later I think that Phil from Dulux found out how much the sculpture was worth and it was, Mm. yeah, quite 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 a price. Yeah. Good save. Very good save. Very lucky. I could have been just thrown off the bus at that point, I think. That's it. Packed our phone. It would just be awful because you don't, like, if it's something, you, you like, you can't just scramble and catch it. It's not like a frying pan or something you just grab at it because you just think, am I going to damage it more yeah. by, like, lunging at it? And you're trying to look cool at the same time. Oh, it's got my name written all over it. I feel for you. Like, that. thank God it didn't hit. doesn't matter. It didn't hit the ground. Heart-stopping moment. Yeah, didn't even get an Instagram shot. Out of that, it was just <laughs> get back on the bus. Nothing. You'll feel judged, Yeah. <laughs> But they all teased me en- endlessly about it. So, you know, I gave everyone else a bit of entertainment. So that was good. <laughs> There's always a joker in the pack. <laughs> I bet they're better off with that. I bet they put that sculpture in a better spot or weighted it down. I'm going to move my side. Now, probably, sadly, it's probably got like a little barricade around it with string or something. Anyway, blame me. <laughs> 
when you mention about the creative process and you know having that moment with your sketchbook, when you start a project, how do you unfold that design process? Is it getting together with a team or is there a, a seed that comes from you know from you and you sort of bring that through into the project? How does it how do you unpack that? Yeah, I think that I love context and I love to think about the constraints of context. Often I find a site that doesn't have a lot of that more challenging than something that is full of constraints and maybe is, you know, quite spatially constrained or or has to deal with a particular heritage context, those sorts of things. So for me, there's a bit of analysis and unpacking that goes into that. I think, you know, back to the sort of difference to between the real project and the competition. I think those client kind of conversations that are really interesting at the beginning. It's good to kind of understand, I guess, the ambition and, you know, the creativity of your clients too. I think that's a big factor in projects that are exciting for us. Often they have, you know, it's cliche, but they have really great clients who are really supportive of what we're trying to do. So we often don't take the project too far before we talk to the client. It sort of varies, but often, you know, I, maybe it's a sketch from me or it might be some sort of massing strategies or ideas around context and diagramming. I think that I've always found diagrams a really helpful tool. So they set up, I guess, some criteria for what you're trying to achieve as a design practice. And I think that is also, if you have a really clear idea, I think that that helps to communicate what the design should be to different people within our team too. But yeah, we've been trying to mix it up lately. Like we've got within our team, because we are, you know, six of us, that means we can kind of, you know, we can all combine together on a big project, but we can all split off into smaller pairs and work on things at different scales too. So it gives us a lot of flexibility, I think. And so it's quite interesting too, just designing with different people in my team. I definitely don't do it all. Like I, I'm very much into the, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm like an editor and more of a, you know, it's sort of a, a crit. We like to do also just a lot of all team member reviews. Like, so I just think sometimes when you have a meeting and, you know, if only two or three of us have been working on one project, just showing it to everyone else and getting their input is just so valuable. It gives everybody an opportunity to kind of see what they like and don't like. And it's the same with the WhatsApp channels. So we're just kind of sharing it with, everyone, even the people who aren't working on the project, so they can see what's going on. And sometimes that's them just pipping in and saying, oh, that's looking great, or I don't know about that colour, or whatever, you know, positives and negatives, yeah. And it's about generating that conversation, isn't it? We, internally within the team, you can talk about the bravery of clients, but also within the team to challenge each other creatively and say, don't like that colour or let's talk about this. And sometimes when you you know go into those conversations, they can have surprising results. How does that dialogue work in the office? Yeah, no, I think that's true because you can sometimes just be working on something for so long that you aren't always in the best position to kind of critique it. How do these conversations work? I mean, we've definitely got different personalities within our group. So there's some people who you have to kind of like drag the comments out of more than others. But I think generally we just have approached it with an openness that everybody, I guess, can have a contribution to every project. And we try to keep those things kind of informal too. So we'll just often share it over morning tea or afternoon tea or, you know, Friday afternoon drink or something like that. 
I want to work in your office. Yeah, that makes me envious. <laughs> Envy. I love like a town hall, all in, guard down. That's just appeals to my, like, so boho. It's lovely. Like, I think it's really nice to share. Explains the tea. That exp- like, I can see that tea and review. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm a slightly indecisive person, which is a little bit incompatible with being a supposedly decisive designer. So consultation for me is also about testing your the things. Sometimes I have a really strong instinct about a particular design move or something I'm really, you know, that I won't give up on and that I, I'm very conscious needs to be in the project. But sometimes I think other people's inputs are so valuable. I think that it's really useful as a parent as well to have that approach to design. I have a really strong view that sometimes we sort of think that parents and females don't have enough time to run practices. So I'm a solo parent and I run a practice now. My partner, Nick, um, you know, passed away about five years ago. And so that was a really challenging time too, to think about how do I take this practice and do I keep doing it? And I've had to find strategies that I think if you share the load and not only just the load of the work, but also sometimes that load of making all the decisions, if you share that across your team, that it actually enables you to be able to do more. And so I think that's quite an empowering thing to sort of think, I don't actually have to do everything or make every design choice here. I can sort of ultimately sort of, I guess I have the ultimate veto, but being open to that process, I think it's really important. That and is- it's amazing how people step up and into that collaboration as well. You know, they want to be part of it. And you might be the guiding hand, but, you know, if everyone has a voice in the project, that, that makes it stronger, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I see it as a little bit of an equity thing too, because, I, you know, if I possibly tried to run my practice in a different mould where it was I'm um, a sort of genius designer or something, I probably just wouldn't have enough time to do the number of projects that we're trying to do and be in control of everything. So I, I see it as if we change those expectations around sort of design being a solo activity to design being a collaborative exercise, then it actually kind of empowers, I think, a more diverse group of people to participate in design because they can do it as a team and they, they can fit it into their lives. Yes. <laughs> I've got a bit evangelical there. Sorry. I hadn't even thought about it because I sometimes I view collaboration as like the C word. I'm like, oh, can't we just do it my way? And you're right that the, the offs, like the, I understand like rationally why we have to collaborate, but emotionally you just explained to me how it's beneficial because then people have purchased, they have agency, they are a part of it. And also if the design needs to pull that person's vision through, you know, because the design's going to get birthed or ideally gets birthed by hook or by crook. So bringing other people in and letting them have some space, I'm going to relax the reins a little. Thank you. easy is it collaborating because sometimes you know like classic this is what you're saying like sometimes you think oh it'd just be easier if I did it myself right but then I feel like somehow that's limiting too because it means you're only able like there's only one of you so you can only do so much and you know I guess I just don't always I can see 
having tested this, I've been forced into this, I think, more than anything else. Like quite literally, I think, you know, possibly if my partner Nick was still around, I might run my practice in a really different way. But I think I do look around and I go, who are these? Where are these? You know, there aren't enough females running design practices. There aren't enough single parents running design practices. There's a whole lot of, you know, possibly reasons for this. So I guess I just try to find ways that make it work for me because I'm really passionate about what I do and I want to do it for a long time. And I don't want to burn out either. I, I want to, you know, have longevity and get to the point in my career where I can do really exciting, bigger scale work. So, you know, it's a navigation through this. I might change my mind sometime, but that's where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. Thank you. That was, yeah, gosh. And it's a really interesting comment about burnout, isn't it? Because it is relentless and you you think of the last two years and, and what we've been through and that idea of collaborating remotely as well. How do you avoid that burnout? Do you see it coming or you just, how, how do you deal with that yourself? We all need a holiday at the moment, oh. don't we? Yeah, I'm really excited. We're all closing for three and a half weeks. So I'm not sure if any of my clients will end up listening to this podcast, but I've been like calling them all up and letting them know because we need it. We need that time off this year. And, you know, we closed for three weeks last year as well over the Christmas period. But yes, I, I think I, I'm not the best person to advise on avoiding the um, stress of the current world. But, you know, obviously it's challenging. I think for me, I like to mix it up. A little bit in terms of just my day-to-day -day. I'm not always in the mood to be creative so luckily I have heaps of boring stuff I can do as well so when I'm not in a creative mood I'm quite good at like moving on and maybe doing something that doesn't require that part of my brain and I think sometimes just being honest about that helps too and trying to do the creative tasks when you actually have the sort of mental space to do them if you can is also a really good strategy. After the gin and tonic, perhaps. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. So I guess, you know, what would be your dream project? What, what is in the future? Yeah, I mean, the future is such a hard thing to predict. So I don't think I'm where I thought I would be when I started my practice. And so what I am is really open to um, different opportunities. I think we're pretty lucky in that the practice is growing um, with quite a diverse group of work like we we do really different types of projects so i'd love to keep doing more um, public and community work but maybe at a bigger scale or maybe in different types of work that we haven't done before i mean they're not necessarily dream projects but you know like actually doing social housing and multi-res housing or tackling a kind of more uh, like a project that has more of a master plan civic scale or buildings within a context like that would be really exciting for me so where you're sort of almost developing a precinct. But yeah, I'm I'm also, you know, just excited about some of the things we have coming up and just seeing them realised. Like we've had a very intense couple of years with designing things and, and documenting things. And yeah, just two days ago, I was on site. We're, we're doing a little pedestrian bridge, which I never would have put down as a dream project. But then in a way, I'm like, oh, that's a really exciting thing to be doing, a bridge. Like, you know, like, I think when I first got invited to bid for that project, I sort of almost asked them, are you sure you want us to put in a quote for that? So I think all sorts of interesting opportunities are sort of out there. Absolutely. 
with your architectural language, you know, you've got this amazing, when I look at your work, the the way that you filter light through your facades or through your roofing elements and then it's beautiful sort of strapping and then I think of Ballarat and the black and the white and um, the end of trip building and this amazing sort of palette of colour. How do you play with colour in your buildings? Thank you. That's some very nice comments. Yeah, that... The Ballarat project definitely has like a sort of quite a striated black and white ceiling, which, you know, uses the kind of white colour of the standard gallery walls, but also the black is this acoustic kind of um, attenuation for the interior. So what that was quite graphic, I think, in terms of its response. And then in some of our other projects, I think that graphic or that interesting pattern has translated into colour. And so the end of trip facilities you're talking about in um, which we did for the University of Melbourne's South Bank campus is probably our most extreme and most colourful project. Julius gave us an award for last year, which was lovely. I, I, yeah, I guess I am quite interested in, in pattern and tone and how you can animate a project. And I think that for me that that's probably at the heart of it is how does a space become kind of beautiful through the way you use materials and sometimes the materials are not in themselves particularly expensive or you know they're quite straightforward they might be timber battens and we've painted them in a certain way but it's trying to find I guess some delight in those small things I think my eye enjoys the kind of patination of something and so it's not the easiest thing always to achieve but it's something that we're quite interested in doing sort of rhythms and how something can be geometric is also something I'm really interested in and we've been exploring that a bit more in some of our um, recent projects too. And the the projects are often quite dynamic in that the light sort of falling through the project and that sort of it's very playful in a sense that it, it has a lightness to it that you're playing with colour and tone and texture but also the way that you're articulating light through the space. Do you consider that in your design? Yeah, definitely. And I think light is a really beautiful way to animate a surface almost through no effort on your own part, right? And so if you can sculpt light through a skylight or... Um, you know, often we're doing community buildings that might have elements of the program that need to be quite private. And so, you know, bringing light in from above is just a really easy way to do that. I think I, um, you know, we're doing a small stage in Broadmeadows at the moment. And so, you know, we've had some really interesting conversations with the client about that because we have tried to do the roof as this sort of porous element that filters light so that when it's not a stage, it's actually a pavilion that can be used for a range of different activities for the TAFE next door to do outdoor learning or for somebody to come and do a yoga class and just being able to create a space that will feel nice even when an event is not necessarily on. I think, yeah, it's really nice to sort of play with those ideas. We've got an Oculus on one end that kind of um, we talk about being sort of under the um, spotlight of the sun. So you can almost stand on that corner under a skylight and the you know, the lighting conditions in that end are really amplified and then there's sort of shading uh, sort of batten structures across the other part that sort of allow for filtered light. So, yeah, that'll be fun to see how it turns up. And at night, some illumination um, yes. as well. So, yeah, no. And, you know, you, you said earlier you described yourself as indecisive, but I would say, or contrary, I would say you are flexible because you're inviting in Mother Nature to partake in your structures 
Like you're not yeah. pushing Let's get it. it out, that indecisive thing. No, yeah, flexible. Yeah. I like it. Oh, I'm going to change my terminology. Totally flexible. You, you you adapt to what's coming at you next. And sometimes I think when you don't have the answer, it's because you don't have all the information yet. And allowing like Mother Nature to take a seat at the table while you design, because, you know, there are structures that totally obliterate all natural light and recreate it themselves, like very controlling, whereas feels like you're very open to like it's very much on theme what we we're talking before about collaboration like letting the other people take some space letting the other elements take some space it's interesting too like i think a lot of our work until you know probably currently as well but until quite recently a lot of it's alterations and additions so there's a certain like you can't be too prescriptive about your vision like you sort of have to work with the constraints of what's there and I think we also do, you know, education work for um, the Department of Education, so public schools or some university work where the budgets can be quite tight and constrained. So we have to be really opportunistic, I think. We've got a really nice refurbishment we're doing at Monash Uni at the moment. And part of the strategy there, it's not light from above because that's not possible, but it was looking at this sort of building from the early 90s and it's got a very beautiful concrete frame, but it's infilled by brick and you know it sort of how could we transform that and just went back to count how do we punch an opening um, at the scale of the concrete frame through these very specific moments and just have these quite beautiful I think green portals they're going to punch out of those holes and when you're in so it's on site at the moment and I was there this week and you look out suddenly you see all these gum trees and you can see all this context that's outside of the window and it feels like you're sort of up within the trees. And again, it's just through borrowing from the context, I think you can add a lot of beauty to projects. It's like you're collaborating with nature in a way. You're bringing, yeah. inviting that in. Yeah, we'll see. And then, we, you know, I don't know, nature's not always what you want it to be. No. I think we've got another project that is hopefully will be expanded to have a bit more scope in it because it's got a um, pretty ugly drain running down one boundary sort of one of those like outdoor melbourne water kind of thing so we're trying to get it's, it used to be a creek and we're trying to get a creek naturalization into it and kind of actually take it back to being what it used to be so we're working with oculus and landscape architects on this so i think the context that architecture sits in is really important and so you know we're always looking for how we can kind of respond to those heritage contexts or existing trees or kind of, you know, beautiful light conditions. But yeah, when it's a bit ugly, maybe we can improve it as well. Uh, and fair call, drain back to a creek. Yeah, I couldn't be in more. All easements should be returned back. Tricky process though, as it turns out. Anyway, yeah. let's see how we go. River engineers galore, more collaboration, yay. Definitely a lot. <laughs> So we know every architect has their favourite Dulux white. Is there a white that you use all the time? I think I probably do use oh, this is white lexicon quarter, I think it is. But it is, I think the reason for that is because, you know, one of our first projects that we sort of delivered was with the Art Gallery of Ballarat and they were just like, this is the white, this is the white we use, this is the gallery white that we use on our walls. So we've sort of stuck with that for whites. 
you didn't get a choice. You just had to sign up for that one. No, and now that's – I'm open to other suggestions. I think white on white has been used before. Maybe I don't have the most um, exciting white selections. But it's amazing what light does to white as well. We were saying earlier there's, there's no such thing as white, really. There's only shades of. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we definitely have projects where I don't think there's any white paint, which is often – it's probably more common than not, actually. So we, you know, I think we've got quite a few projects where we tried to use express materials and quite raw materials or, you know, as timber finishes. And then all the things that are painted might be a colour or, you know, like a grey or, yeah, other things. Is there a colour that keeps on, that pops up all the time? We've got a few, like on this Monash project with the green we really fell in love with this color thunderbird which is this quite dark teal and so we've been making i think we had to find a powder coat that might have been on the new zealand range anyway but yes thunderbird's lovely but i think sometimes the color is just what's right for the project like it sort of needs to fit with the with the context i think there's no specific color that keeps reoccurring in our work. Not yet. We've got, but I do sort of have a bit of a, a a like of greens. We've got another project that is trying to reference Australian landscapes. And so there's a really nice, I think it's called pale eucalypt that we're using on a lot of the sort of interior elements in that project. And it sort of just talks to that quality of a really kind of muted green that sort of talks to the Australian landscape. Yep of green you have there's that image i saw i think it's the maidstone tennis pavilion and that image i think it's a bathroom and there's the dark timber with the mint that mm. is inspired like that is life-changing that is living in my head rent free is that can you tell us how that happened the existing pavilion was really dilapidated so it's a, we added new accessible bathrooms and storage facilities to a heritage tennis pavilion and that tennis pavilion is probably 100 years old I think and was really dilapidated but it had this original minty coloured green paint might have been added in the 1950s and we decided to reinstate that so the new toilets sort of took the materiality of the original building but were quite you know an expressed raw timber with a clear clear finish on it and then we wanted to pick up on the green through the new elements. So the storage wall has a sort of a green ampelite wall and then that flooring is sort of a very specific minty green vinyl. But interestingly, when it was on site, the builder couldn't get the green vinyl because they'd run out of stock in Australia and he was like, we'll just have to substitute that and for another colour. And I was like, no. We cannot substitute it for another colour. So it did have to get shipped in from overseas. We put up down. We were like... Non-negotiable. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. You've got to get the courier to get that in from France. So I don't like to be that architect all the time, but there are moments where, yeah, exactly, it's, it was such a fundamental part of the design. It just couldn't be a grey floor. Oh, it couldn't. That would just no. be so sad. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so sweet. That mint is so sweet and it's so convinced of its job. And it's the underplayer. You know, it's like a top heavy with the dark on top. So it, it splices it up and it gives that chocolate a surprise. I oh. think it might be discontinued as well, which is very sad. I'm, anyway, I'm, I have this feeling that it's like one of those colours that they've stopped making. I think that happens to all the interesting colours, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
conservative I, times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard sometimes to find materials in the colour you want. Like, we've got this sports pavilion and we've been quite keen for it to be this sort of terracotta-y red, but we don't want to paint it. So trying to find durable facade materials that could be this colour. Anyway, we're getting somewhere with it, but it's been um, it's been a bit of a search for different materi- materials. Sometimes I think, you know, our, our choices are a little bit limited in Australia. Hopefully it's improving. I think it is. Or you just have to fly it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you do, I got really excited. Like Colour Bond, I think, have brought out like a new range of like heaps and heaps of Colour Bond colours. Like it's like they used to have like 12 and now there's like 100. And, yeah, like legitimately in our team, people are like, whoa, look at this. This is so exciting. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the good thing about paint is there's no real limitations. Yeah. And last question, any new or fresh talent out there, Anything you, anyone you've got your eye on, a particular emerging artist or designer or someone you have collaborated with perhaps? Yeah, well, back to collaboration, I guess, that's, one of the really nice things I think too is you discover people you didn't really know about. We've got a few people we've been collaborating with recently, like an Indigenous artist, Kent Morris, who's doing a mural for one of our projects. So I think he has been doing murals for quite some time, but it wasn't on my radar. And his work has this very beautiful fusion of kind of, you know, Indigenous kind of languages, but also almost like it's for a faculty of IT. So it's got this quite futuristic vibe. I don't know if I've described it very well. Beautiful, beautiful deep blues. And recently when we were working on the NGV competition, it was really lovely to collaborate with a few younger practices on that as well. So in addition to John Wardle, who was, who was leading the collective, we also worked with Pierce Widera, Amy and Nat, just fantastic interior designers. It was really great to kind of have their take on the things they were doing. And Jeffrey Greenaway, who has also done some really beautiful things for the project. So he's an architect and, yeah, great work. And it's amazing to get all those like-minded people together or design team together and then start collaborating and sharing ideas. It must be quite exciting. Yeah, everybody comes from a really different point of view and I think it's really exciting when you come from a different point of view and you find common ground and can build on each other's ideas as well. And then sometimes things are just sort of, you know, serendipitous and you you realise that something you were thinking is something someone else is kind of thinking about but in a slightly different way and it's great. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah, all really exciting people. So it would be hopefully good to work with them again. Well, thank you so much for your time, Susanna. It's been an amazing conversation to have. So much fun. Thanks for having yeah. me on. I've really enjoyed it.